Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is Joseph L. Flatley, and you are listening to the Failed State Update. I am recording this on June 23rd, 2020. Uh, Just some housekeeping things. If you're not a subscriber to my newsletter, shame on you. You can check it out at lennyflatley.substack.com. Also, be sure to follow me on Twitter, at Lenny Flatley. And uh, if you want to reach out to me, you can contact me through the form on my webpage at LennyFlatley.net. Yeah, so why don't we just start by you can describe who you are and, and how you wrote the book Badges Without Borders, How Global Insurgency Transformed American Policing. You know, I, I, I literally would, would go from marching in the streets against police violence um, to, you know, go back home and, 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 and do a little bit of more work on, on writing the, the manuscript. And, and then it, it was another, you know, four plus years of watching the reform efforts that the Obama administration called for after, you know, the uprisings in Ferguson and Baltimore um, that, you know, kind of coincided with me finishing the book. And one of the arguments of the book is that police reform continually fails. Uh, It started failing, you know, even before the 1960s, it failed after the sixties. And, and then from, you know, 2014 to, to 2020, uh, we've seen the consistent failure of, of police reform to bring about more just um, and fair outcomes and less racially biased outcomes. So, you know, I feel like I've been, I've been working on this stuff thinking historically, but, but constantly, you know, with an eye on, on current events and, and, and always informed by what I'm seeing and experiencing in, in the world around me. Why do you think that, police reform is consistently failing? Well, I mean, in, in one way, of course, it's not failing because part of what police reform is, is trying to do is stave off more radical transformations. And that, that worked basically up until a few weeks ago. And then now, um, you know, brilliant, you know, colleagues of, of mine, like, Maren Kaba and, and Kianga Yamada-Taylor are, you know, writing in the New York Times and the New Yorker um, about abolishing police. And, you know, these ideas are, are gaining, you know, widespread mainstream legitimacy um, to the extent that there is even, you know, a kind of backlash against them. It's, it's feeble and, and, you know, to my mind is not really 
being taken that seriously. So, so it, it might, it might be the case that, or, or I, I believe that we are right now at, at a real inflection point, but consistently what police reform has tried to do throughout the history of the 20th century, it has been to foster the legitimacy of the police in response to the police self-sabotaging their own legitimacy. Police commit, you know, outrages, abuses, uh, and, and some of, you know, some of them make headlines and, and obviously, and then some of them go completely unremarked, but ultimately reform is an effort to recapture some legitimacy. And part of the purpose of recapturing legitimacy itself, I think we could say is to try to make people comply with police. Uh, people tend to be non-compliant with police if they think they are illegitimate and unfair, which, you know, creates a, a somewhat vicious cycle. So police reformers are aware of this and they're on the one hand trying to, you know, stave off the critique from, from the left. And, and on the other hand, they're trying to uh, restabilize the institution so that it can go about its work without much, you know, interference from elected officials, social movements, and others. Um, and 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 again, I I just I think that you know, not that I think that the the demand for police reform from within the profession is going away. Um, right now, the the reformers are are you know working feverishly to figure out the the pitch perfect uh, claim that reform will get us out of this current crisis, um, us, you know, from, from their perspective, us. Uh, but, but I think it's, it's unlikely, A, it's unlikely that the crisis can be resolved through reform. There's no evidence that that's ever been possible. And B, I just think that the general public is a lot more savvy at this point right now about um, how calls for reform have been used to stave off more dramatic transformation. And I don't think there's any way to understand the intensity of the current protests without seeing them as um, directly responding to the, the failures of, of reform after, you know, Ferguson and Baltimore, you know, the, 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 the rates, the, the racial disparities um, in policing, the, the rates of police killing, the, the raw numbers of police killings, you know, these really have not change to the extent that, that we understand the data since since the last round of uprisings. And I think people know it, uh, know it in their bones. And that's what they're protesting. That's part of the, 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 the motivation for their protests. Sure. And, you know, once again, we have a situation which comes up so often when you're talking about policing and the sort of thing where the other side, you know, assuming that we are, you know, activists left who want to change the system the other side the system they're not we're speaking different languages they're not even honest about what what they're after you know we the word reform means to correct something but that's not even what the police reform movement or the police itself is talking about and to even think that the police could or would want to 
actually change what they're doing in some fundamental way. I guess once you think about it, it doesn't make any sense, but we've been, they've been repeating that for so long that that's how politicians talk. That's how the news media talks. So, you know, you, you can excuse us for being kind of brainwashed by the language here, but I think you're absolutely right. What's going on in the streets now is really the antidote to that brainwashing. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I guess the one thing I would say is that, you know, I do, I, I don't, I don't know that we can ever really, you know, know what's in, in anybody's, you know, hearts or, 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 or heads really, but it, it is, it is certainly the case that some, some police reformers, um, particularly those whose jobs, you know, depend on demonstrating, you know, effectiveness and, and, and demonstrating legitimacy. I think some police reformers really do want to, you know, lessen the number of police killings. Um, they want to lessen, you know, what they see as community frictions. They want to create the possibility for, you know, better quote unquote community relations. Um, part of that is because their jobs depend on it. But part of that is because they also come into policing, you know, believing, as you say, some of these kind of media myths about what what policing is about. And, you know, it's it's hard not to to, to blame people because we're bombarded basically 24 seven with um, false representations of, of what policing actually looks like. You know, we watch, uh, you know, turn on the television and, and we can watch, uh, you know, multiple programs every night where the police you know, solve every murder and, and protect every, every, you know, person who's at risk, you know, save every lost child when, you know, the reality is that the statistics don't bear that out in any way, shape or form. So, you know, I, I think that in order to have a, a, a strong critique of the institution, we need to um, get outside of, trying to um, interpret or divine the intentions of the reformers because their intentions might be quite good or understandable or reasonable, but ultimately we, we need to look beyond that and, and, and look at what the um, institution is doing and what the institution is designed to do and and as as we've been talking about what things like like um you know procedural reforms are trying to achieve when looking at this and i do want to go into kind of contemporary policing and how it's you know the kind of interaction between the military overseas and domestic law enforcement and counterinsurgency but the one thing I keep encountering whenever I begin to look at this and it's so important um, is just the fact that the U S is, is an empire. And um, I'm wondering if you can kind of like define, you know, the terms here, like maybe to somebody who hasn't encountered this before, like how is the U S an empire? And then what is the effect of that at home? Yeah. Well, you know, of course there are, uh, you know, endless shelves of, of books that, that try to answer this question. And I, I think for me, there are basically, you know, two features that are sometimes quite hard to talk about in the same conversation. And, and sometimes I find myself basically having two different conversations. I mean, I think on the one hand, um, when we talk about the U.S. as an empire, we're talking about 
a set of political and economic relations where um, the U.S. you know maintains uh, superordinate power over other parts of the globe. Um, a lot of this is based in the kind of intricacies of global finance, where you know the dollar is at the the center of the vast majority of cross-border economic transactions, the benefits for that redound to the United States rather than to anywhere else. Um, all of that, you know, some, some people would argue that, that we shouldn't use the word empire for that, but, you know, basically I'm, I'm, I'm pretty uh, willing to use the word empire to describe this, this situation that others might call, call hegemony. Um, but, there's another dimension which which takes us you know a little bit out of the realm of kind of finance and, and economics, which is what I focus on in my book, which is at a more kind of granular level around how the United States um, decides to intervene um, using coercion, using force, using violence on the ground. Um, and what the, 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 the forms and, and um, you know, tangible aspects of that coercion look like. So, I, I, you know, in, in, in the book, I use this term discretionary to describe how I understand U.S. foreign policy and, and the decisions that policymakers about intervening, you know, beyond it the borders of the United States. Of course, as we, as, as many people will know, you know, the United States maintains over 800 military bases around the world. Um, these provide a, a kind of footprint for interventions around the globe um, with the, with this global network or global footprint it, it's very easy logistically for the United States to, you know, for somebody in the White House or the National Security Council, um, you know, to make a decision basically on a, you know, to turn on a dime and say, okay, we need to deploy force to place X and the, you know, logistical apparatus will go into motion immediately, like flipping a switch and, 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 de- and force can be deployed. Obviously, recent examples of this are, you know, Trump's decision to, uh, you know, kill a, a high official of the Iranian government, Qasem Soleimani, with a drone strike. Um, but in, 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 in the book, when I talk about the discretionary empire, I'm trying to play to a little, to, uh, to, to a small degree on the centrality of the term discretion to policing. So I argue that the the discretionary decision to intervene around the globe during the Cold War in, again, as as I said, 52 countries where the United States provided police assistance, um, you know, the the United States made the choice according to its own rationales, its own prerogatives um, to to enact this, this type of coercive force. But it also used uh, local police forces in these countries to achieve its goals. And those local police forces themselves are endowed with a certain amount of discretion. That's a, a key feature of, of policing that I, I can explain in a second. Um, so thinking about how we put these two pieces together, the kind of economic piece 
and the coercive piece on the ground can can get quite challenging. And and I and I, I have to be clear that you know in my book I'm I'm focusing mainly on the uh, coercive aspect of using other countries' police forces to achieve foreign policy goals um, that are you know amenable to to the to the United States. But in the big picture, well, what does that mean? It means those countries, you know, don't uh, nationalize their oil industries. Those countries um, consistently provide the exports that the United States is looking for. Those countries allow U.S. firms access to their consumer markets and so forth. So we can see that um, ultimately what the the policing project on the ground looks like is to make sure that a, a version or variant of U.S. style capitalism is able to flourish um, in in these places, and in and in the places where it didn't flourish, these were considered you know dramatic failures for the the programs that the that the United States national security apparatus was um, was interested in. You know, I think that the historical difference between like. American empire and what we think of colonial empires like British or the Dutch is that United States, you know, at some point in the cold war early on in the cold war decided to, you know, rather than invade countries and have like the military involved, they would prop up nationalist figures um, and give them nominal freedom or nominal independence as long as they towed the line. For the exactly. States. Exactly. Yeah, that that is that is a key distinction that I try to explain in the book um, in terms of, of why why U.S. empire is different. Um, you know, I, I use a term um, in the book imperialism without imperialists, meaning that the United States, unlike, say, the, the, the British Empire, the United States doesn't have a colonial office. It doesn't uh, create a, a large class of um, bureaucrats to operate on the ground. Of course, there are notable exceptions. I think, you know, South Vietnam is is the, the largest one, certainly in, in the 1960s. Um, but, but yes, you're exactly right, that the United States is trying to find a way not to engage in old-style imperialism. And, and I think it's important to note that one of the reasons for that is because the United States is actually deeply worried about some of the issues that are coming to the fore right now, you know, in the streets, the United States worries about uh, being seen as a, uh, a, as replicating. And when I say the United States, I really mean elite policymakers in Washington um, and, 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 and some social scientists who, who, who help them out. What, what they're very worried about is um, a critique coming from the Soviet Union and, and also from communists within the United States, including African-American communists, that the, that the United States is an empire just like the British that is, that is solely interested in subjugating people of color. And this, this critique really rattles policymakers. They're not willing to give up on the economic rewards um, of empire. They're not willing to give up on the 
uh, ideological rewards that they perceive of bringing um, modern American style capitalism to other parts of the globe. But they are quite worried that alliances will form among uh, nationalist forces in uh, what became the, the, th the third world and uh, African-American people, particularly African-American radicals in the United States. So when you get to the 1960s and it actually does become the case that black radicals are very explicitly, and of course it wasn't new at this point, um, but are very explicitly invoking their solidarity with uh, freedom fighters in, you know, in South Vietnam or in Latin America or in, you know, parts of the Middle East, uh, you know, the, the very people that I'm talking about in my book who are concerned with security on a granular level, um, they are extremely alarmed. This is what the United States has been trying to avoid uh, for, for decades after the end of World War II. Um, and so they, they really you know, spring into action. And, and that's, that's part of what I, I try to explore in the book. Yeah. You know what your book makes clear and um, you know, further looking to this topic makes clear is, you know, the black Panthers had like a really good kind of rhetorical line. You know, the United States has colonized the ghetto is just the way, same way we've, we've colonized other countries, but like your book, really makes clear it's it's not actually a rhetorical <laughs> it's like actually literal on some level exactly yeah that that is exactly one of the kind of um that's a, a primary impetus for for my analysis you know is it, it was to 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 go into the archives of the national security state you know look at at declassified documents and figure out uh, you know i assumed that huey p newton and bobby seal um, were exactly right. I assumed that from the get-go, but I wanted to find if there were ways to substantiate some of their, you know, political intuitions and analyses uh, by looking at the the records of the national security state. And lo and behold, yeah, it's 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 one hundred percent true that the, you know, police in South Vietnam who are who are committing outrages that are propelling the. Uh, you know, peace movement, the, the, the anti-imperialist movement in the United States, of which the, the Panthers are a part, um, you know, th they have these close personal relationships with leading police uh, experts in, in the United States. I mean, many of these police officials in, in South Vietnam who are responsible for really deep repression, even, even aside from the, uh, you know, the, 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 the the, the military war effort, um, which it gets quite complicated to kind of lay out the, the landscape of everything that's going on. But these, a lot of these police officials who are really repressive of students, of dissident religious movements, of workers' movements in, in South Vietnam, even aside from the National Liberation Front, the kind of guerrilla struggle, these police guys, you know, they've been hanging out in, in Michigan. Um, they've been hanging out in... Uh, you know, Virginia, they've, they've been hanging out with some of the leading lights of, you know, criminology in the United States. They've been learning uh, 
how to affect a traffic stop. They've been learning how to collect fingerprints. They've been learning how to fill out a you know, three by five index card that contains personal data on you know, suspects so that they can then be you know, rounded up um, appropriately when, when need be. They've been learning that from US law enforcement experts. When did the U.S. military and law enforcement domestically sort of begin to converge? Yeah, it's a good question, and it's it's hard to answer. I mean, I think that one of the arguments that I try to make in the book is that we should be wary of looking for a moment in history when police were pure and separate from the military. That I think we... You know, as much as I am a critic of what we understand today as, you know, the quote unquote militarization of policing, I don't think that we get very far in in a kind of fundamental critique of the institution if we assume that the kind of military accoutrement can be removed and therefore police will be pure and fine, you know, and just and, and fair. That, that, is not, that is not the case. And when we look historically, you know, again, my book mainly focuses on the period after World War II. Um, but, you know, even in, in the immediate aftermath of World War II, and this is something I actually learned after I finished the book, um, if, if you open the, the FBI law enforcement bulletin, which is a, a you know, month, approximately monthly publication that came out from the FBI and was issued, you know, sent around to police across the United States, basically it's a, a newsletter for the FBI. If you opened it in 1946 or 1947, there would be an ad that said, you know, police take advantage of this great deal. Uh, you can get free machine guns from, from the, the, the army. So, you know, if, if we assume that the, the quote-unquote militarization of policing really only began in the 1990s under Bill Clinton, which I think a lot of people have argued, well, then uh, what do we do with a, a, a kind of anomalous historical detail like that, that, that the military was, was trying to put its, its, its machinery in the hands of, of police as, as far back as, as the end of World War II? What do we do with something that I do talk about in the book, which was that Again, the, the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, which I mentioned earlier, um, took as one of its tasks l- lubricating those types of transfers um, of surplus gear from the military to police uh, during the, the war in Vietnam. What do we do with the fact that police themselves had been demanding um, that the, the LEAA help them out on, on those types of transactions. And then what do we do with the fact that after the Spanish-American War, which is not something I really deal with in the book, but after the Spanish-American War, as shown in, in recent scholarship by a sociolo- sociologist named Julian Goh, many police chiefs in big cities around the United States were veterans of the Spanish-American War who applied many of the lessons they learned about things like patrol, training, um, uh, uh, m- including marksmanship training um, and, and communications, they applied many of those lessons that they learned in the army in, in, in really counter guerrilla warfare in the Philippines to their, their task of policing in the United States. You know, basically my point is we can look throughout uh, 
the 20th century, at least, and somebody who studies the 19th century might even tell me, well, you got to look at the 19th century. Um, we can find all of these examples where police and military blur, where police invoke um, military-style discipline, military-style hierarchy, military-style training, uh, as what they need to do to make police more effective. So once we you know, really wrestle with this blurriness, um, I think we, we have to come to the conclusion that, you know, merely getting rid of, say, the 1033 program, which I advocate, and I think we absolutely should get rid of, that won't necessarily demilitarize policing. And the, the 1033 program, you know, refers to the, the uh, shift made by Congress during the Clinton administration in the in the defense bill to allow and facilitate the transfer of surplus military material to police um, at low or no cost. So I do think we need to get rid of the 1033 program. And I do think actually that it might happen, uh, particularly if Congress goes, uh, you know, democratic and the president becomes a Democrat. Although, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be too, too hopeful, but it's, it's not impossible to see that go away. Will that demilitarize policing? I don't think so. I think that um, we need to have a more, you know, robust and deep understanding of the lengthy history of police looking to the military for lessons um, and also of, of narrating what they do in terms of war. It's not only the, the war on drugs or the war on crime, you know, in terms of the 1960s and 70s that really introduces the kind of metaphor of war. You, you know, if you look historically at the language that police use about what they're up against, um, they, use, they use the metaphor of war consistently f for a very long time. Right, right. And, um, you know, one thing that was kind of clear became clear reading your book is that, um, you know, people worry about militarization and in their mind, you know, they envision that means, you know, tanks and assault rifles as if somehow we got rid of those, then police departments would be, you know, it'd be Andy Mayberry or something, but um, Andy Griffith, but you talk about professionalism and how the pardon me the professionalization and the professionalization of law enforcement and that seems to be something that's not talked about which is as much or more important or you know goes hand in hand could you kind of discuss that a little bit sure i mean i think professionalization and reform are are kind of um you know two sides of of, of the same coin professionalization the way I use the term is really meant to mark a, a, a major trend that shaped policing in the middle of the 20th century. Police in the early part of the 20th century were oftentimes very corrupt, um, openly corrupt, um, working on behalf of political machines in, in various cities. Starting Approximately in the 1930s, maybe a little earlier, um, pr professionalization becomes an effort to make police departments independent of local political structures, of local elites and um, elected officials. 
professionalization meant that police would answer to themselves rather than answering to uh, ward bosses or machine bosses. They would not be tasked with, you know, collecting various forms of graft. Um, instead, their task would really be uh, crime control and, and, you know, order maintenance. And to professionalize police, to take them out from under the control of these, these corrupt political machines, which was largely a successful um, effort, I, I have to say, you know, what it meant was, again, increasing the training introducing new technologies, raising, you know, recruitment standards, saying, you know, saying police have to be literate in order, you know, you have to be able to read to become a police officer. Uh, somebody had to kind of make a decision at a both local and kind of national level. that This would be a standard that police had to uphold in order to get, to, to get the job. Um, so, so those types of transformations, you know, part of it was about, uh, dealing with with political corruption, but part of it was also going back to what I said earlier about fostering the legitimacy of the police force, um, making it so that police were seen as um, politically neutral, that they were you know merely enforcing the law, they were not uh, politically partial to you know one one party or the other. Uh, and and also they were not partial to one ethnic or racial group or the other. Did they succeed in achieving, you know, convincing people that that w wasn't true? Well, maybe, you know, maybe some, uh, you know, white middle class and upper class white folks who are like, oh, yeah, sure. The police are now no longer, you know, partial. They, they enforce the law neutrally because they were no longer, you know, on the uh, receiving end as, as ethnic minorities of, of police abuse. But of course, um, you know, Puerto Ricans, African-Americans, Mexican-Americans, and, and, and many other folks were very much still on the receiving end of police abuse that in many ways, professionalization aided and abetted because it increased the police legitimacy and it also increased the kind of um, technical capabilities of police to, to do their jobs. I mean, you know, introducing patrol cars and before patrol cars, bicycles and before bicycles, you know, horses, you know, these, these were, these were uh, techniques of modernization that, that on the one hand helped eradicate some of the corruption and graft, but on the other hand, made police, um, you know, much more effective instruments of social control. Again, I, I guess it can't be repeated often enough, you know, that the military in this imperial country that we have, the military and law enforcement are on a continuum. And I think a lot of what you're describing there um, took place overseas. You know, it, it sounds a lot like, you know, what we're hearing about police training in Afghanistan or what happened in the hamlets in Vietnam in the sixties. Yeah. I mean, I think that what's, what's interesting, you know, just, just to kind of give you a, a kind of capsule history. Uh, the book concerns that this, this police assistance and training program, which, which got the name, the office of public safety, which is, uh, I don't, I don't do too much, um, to, to, to kind of 
um, point out how uh, how uh, ominous <laughs> it it is to call it the Office of Public Safety. I don't really delve into that in the book. I think it's just a little bit, hopefully, a little obvious how peculiar it is. But the Office of Public Safety is is you know um, training and and equipping police. Um, ultimately, they argue that they they reach at least a million police around the globe, meaning that they you know train commanding officers who then go back home and. And, and replicate the training they received in the United States, or that police officers in, you know, far off uh, provinces in, in Brazil or um, Thailand, you know, are carrying uh, guns and walkie talkies that they've received from the United States, from the Agency for International Development. So, so a million or more police officers around the globe are touched in that way, um, which, which is quite a substantial number. In 1975, the Office of Public Safety gets closed down, 74, 75. And it's, it gets closed down um, in part because bureaucrats were not thrilled with it, um, in part because social movement activists really uh, highlighted it as, as, a, as a nefarious force in, in the world. So a law gets written that says that the United States can no longer provide training and assistance to police overseas, except under some very special circumstances. So what are those circumstances? Well, one is narcotics control. So if you think about the the history of um, the way that the United States uh, achieves its its kind of um, influence on the globe, even as the experience of the war in Vietnam and various other um, experiences in, you know, came to really fall, the, the foreign policy establishment fell apart as a result in the 1970s, it also was reinventing itself. And so the imperative to control narcotics trafficking overseas allowed a kind of backdoor for the United States to get back into the business of training police in other countries. And so the, of course, the DEA was created in the early 1970s. Um, and then in the 1980s and the, the, during the wars in Central America that were kind of like the, 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 the one of the late, you know, hot moments of, of the so-called cold war, um, during that period, again, there, there, were, there was a push from the White House for the United States to get back into the business of police training. The law that was written in, in, in uh, you know, put on the books in, in 1974 is still on the books to this day. It is still the case that the United States is not supposed to train um, police in other countries, according to this legislation. However, there are a whole bunch of waivers continually signed by the president, authorized by Congress, to do just that. Some of them are for narcotics control, and some of them are for regular old police training. So you get this really peculiar situation that we have in the present, which is that now um, the State Department, the Pentagon, 
and the DEA and the Department of Justice and even the Agency for International Development, as well as, a, you know, a bunch of other um, agencies that, that, you know, I could name to just like go down a ridiculously long list. They're all engaged in training police overseas. And so in Iraq and Afghanistan, in both of those cases, as a kind of condition of the so-called peace and the withdrawal of the United States military uh, was creating a robust and um, well-trained and well-equipped police force. Well, they never quite achieved that goal in either country. And to this day, there is an ongoing effort to train the police in Afghanistan. First, the idea was the United States would use some NATO allies. Then the idea was uh, the United States would use a private contractor, DINCORP, um, those didn't work. So then the Pentagon got involved. Well, what does the Pentagon know about training police? The Pentagon knows about training soldiers. So the Pentagon trains the Afghan national police in basically um, counter guerrilla warfare techniques that require uh, the, the use of you know, semi-automatic rifles and, and various other uh, types of, of heavy armaments. But the State Department says... Uh, you know, according to our uh, our regulations, we can't give the Afghan National Police, you know, these heavy armaments and, and automatic rifles. So they're trained to go on these missions where they're, uh, you know, confronting insurgents, quote unquote insurgents, who are, you know, armed with, with rifles and are extremely skilled at guerrilla warfare, um, but they're not well armed. So they end up getting killed in, in, in massive numbers. And part of the explanation for that, besides the kind of, you know, overall strategic failure is the, the, the just mess that the United States has created in terms of uh, training these forces and equipping these forces. And it's just really a, a disaster and a travesty and, 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 and a moral abomination. But um, this, this is where we're at. The United States is training police in, in dozens of countries around the globe right now under all types of different authorities with no real centralized oversight or even you know, strategic direction to it. Some of it concerns counterterrorism. Some of it concerns counter-narcotics. Some of it concerns you know, the, the kind of basic policing repertoires of um, patrol that uh, you know, went into the the police assistance program that I look at in in the 1960s. You mentioned in the book something that's always kind of fascinated me. Um, the you mentioned how um, the uh, Detroit uprising of 1967 led or might have led to the Tet Offensive. <laughs> I was wondering if you could tell our listeners about that. Yeah. I wish it were true. <laughs> um, is it true or is it just, is it untrue or it's just undetermined whether it's true or not? I think it's untrue, um, but I don't think it can be dismissed at the same time. So what I mean by that is that I do think that it is 100% true that the um, political solidarities and, um, and, and close connections between various members of the uh, Black Freedom Movement in the United States who had an internationalist outlook um, that they built with, with leaders in, um, uh, of, of the 
the you know, freedom movements in, in South Vietnam and, and North Vietnam. I think those, those connections are real. Uh, they cannot be dismissed. The, the uh, spokespeople of the National Liberation Front were extremely attuned to what was going on with the civil rights movement and, and the freedom struggles in the United States and consistently offered their support as did, you know, the, the Chinese communist party um, under Mao, you know, and, 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 and num a number of other countries on a tactical level. Is it true that the idea for urban warfare um, that characterized the Tet Offensive in the early part of 1968 was inspired by the rebellion in Detroit in the summer of 1967? I don't think so. Now, the reason I don't think so is simply because the, um, the, the, the tactician behind the Tet Offensive, Lei Zuan, um, he had already been urging urban combat operations prior to Tet and prior to July 1967. And on a global scale, the idea of urban guerrilla warfare um, was not brand new, you know, in July of 1967. It already was something that existed. However, um, the reason that this claim gained a lot of popularity, I think, which I cite in the book, is that um, uh, General Ziap, who, who is not Lei Zuan, um, he said to, supposedly to Robert F. Williams, who is um, a key figure in, in the Black Freedom Struggle, he said to him, we, we learned from Detroit to go to the cities. So, um, so I think on an ideological level, it's, there, there is a connection and an awareness, and um, we, we absolutely cannot dismiss that. On a tactical level, I don't think that it was um, you know, necessarily the lesson of the Detroit Rebellion for um, you know, the, the, the NLF in South Vietnam to, to go, you know, attack the cities. On the other hand, you know, I guess now I'm on the third or fourth hand. Um, I would say that the idea behind the Tet Offensive, um, well, there, there were multiple kind of strategic goals and whether those were achieved is, um, is something that, of course, historians debate. But one goal was basically to completely you know, delegitimize the U.S. war effort among the American voting public. It succeeded in doing that. And it might be argued that um, the rebellions in New York and Detroit signaled in, in the summer of 1967, signaled to, um, you know, the, the leadership in, in Vietnam uh, of, the, of the NLF um, and, and in Hanoi, it may have signaled that actually the United States was, was weak, was in grave turmoil, um, that the presidency of Lyndon Johnson was, was teetering. And so the idea of taking advantage of that instability through this, you know, massive and spectacular attack in the early months of 1968, um, was a good idea. And ultimately, 
you know, the, what happened was, was, you know, a, a term that, that we, we've learned in, in the past couple of decades. What happened was regime change. Johnson decided not to run for reelection in part because of the, the, the Tet offensive. Um, that wasn't the only reason, but it, it was one re- reason. And to, to, to some degree, I think we, we, we could say that um, if we understand the connection between the rebellions in Detroit as trying to foster radical change on a national scale in the United States and the the Ted offensive as trying to foster radical change with the U S war effort, you know, see seeing those as connected, I think is, is a good idea and is, is something that I really try to do in the book, even as, I have to, I think, you know, just from the perspective of, um, uh, you know, a, a historian working from the evidentiary record, I, I don't think that we could say that on a purely tactical level, the idea came from from the Detroit Rebellion. And, and that really brings us to today. Um, you know, I think there are so many echoes between, you know, the rebellions of the 60s and the rebellions of now that we don't even need to bother listing them. But um, I'm very curious about your perspective as someone who has participated in these protests and, you know, is aware of what's going on in the street. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how you see, you know, the current day in light of the, your knowledge of policing and empire. Well, I would say two things first. One is that what is different today is the scale of the uprisings. I've seen a lot of numbers thrown around, and I, I, want, I want to believe the largest of them. And I think the largest number I've seen for number of um, protests is, is something like 2,600, and that might even be old because literally as we speak um, I'm in Baltimore there's a protest happening a couple miles away right now in Baltimore maybe even multiple protests happening as we speak Um, you know literally before uh, we got on this call I saw a social media post of people marching across the Brooklyn Bridge I mean there, there there are new protests continuing to happen in many cities um you know up 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 until the present and up until whenever a listener listens to this, I can almost guarantee there will be new protests and a lot of them are happening. So, so the duration and also the, the scale they're happening in really small places. They're happening in mainly white uh, small towns. Um, And, and in addition to that, the, the people who are protesting themselves are extremely mixed in terms of their, uh, you know, demographics. In the 1960s, the protests, the, the, the rebellions, they were mainly confined to black neighborhoods and the participants were mainly African-American. Today, protests are happening on, you know, Rodeo Drive. They're happening in Soho. Uh, you know, they're happening in these tony parts of cities. Luxury stores are being looted or, or were looted, I, I think in general, they are not continuing to be looted. 
Um, that was not characteristic of the protests and rebellions of the 1960s, which were, which tended to be geographically confined to, um, you know, the, the existing um, bounded and segregated black neighborhoods. Um, and it's, it's just not the case today that the geographic extent is, is a lot wider. The, the racial composition of the protesters is a lot different. The other thing I would say is that from 1960, and this is something that I talk about in the book, from 1964 to 1967, police responded to protests with outrageous brutality, um, as, as did National Guard. Uh, in some ways, when the army was deployed in, in a couple places, either it arrived too late to um, really do anything or or it was a little bit more restrained than the National Guard. National Guard were, were basically a menace. Um, in 1968, uh, as I explained in the book, the, the United States decided to change on a national scale its, its riot control tactics. And one of the changes that it made was introducing CS, uh, which which is is misleadingly referred to as tear gas, and and that lesson to to use CS to, to, um, to, uh, as a crowd control tool, um, as I explained in the book, largely derived from the testing and experimentation with CS that was done in South Vietnam, not in riot control or crowd control situations, but actually in combat operations. But the United States. Um, started to, to put CS in the hands of police uh, starting in the spring of 1968. And in fact, in the uprisings after Martin Luther King was assassinated in April of, of 1968 in, in cities like Baltimore, D.C. and, and elsewhere, um, you know, CS was used by, by police for the first time. Fast forward to the present, police again are being um, brutal, but they're not killing people in the numbers that they were in the 1960s. Um, some people have died in the protests, and I absolutely do not want to diminish the horror of that. Um, but for the extent and duration and sheer numbers of people participating, the number of people who, who have been killed in these protests by uh, police is, is relatively small. But they're using tear gas in just like unimaginable uh, amounts. And so I think we can draw a kind of direct line from the overseas counterinsurgency experience of police experts that I look at in my book, who then came back home and said to the Johnson administration, you, you got to do something about this. We can't have police killing protesters in the streets or bystanders for that matter, you know, by literally firing their guns into crowds. This is not a good idea. It's only going to intensify the, the unrest. So use tear gas instead. Well, that's what, that's what ended up happening. And now we're, we're kind of living with the consequences of that. People um, 
have, of course, witnessed the way that tear gas, I think, is being used in, a, in an almost offensive way. The idea originally in 1968 with these recommendations was tear gas could be used to de-escalate. Tear gas could be used to defend you know, police and defend property. Well, now we see it being used in an offensive way. We see it being used not to de-escalate, but if anything, to escalate. Um, to, you know, being used in a really aggressive way. I think the lesson of its use in combat in South Vietnam is that this is how it, it was going to be used as an offensive weapon, not a defensive weapon. Um, and and that's, that's what's happening right now. So I, I see a really direct connection to some of what I've, what I looked at in Badges Without Borders um, that I think a lot of people have been witnessing with their own eyes and, and uh, over the past, past few weeks. So, so there are some some real changes as well as continuities. Hey, man, thanks for talking. I really appreciate it. Um, if people want to get a hold of you or want to follow your work, what's the best way to kind of... Yeah, um, follow me on Twitter. It's at S-T-S-C-H-R-A-D-E-R-1. Uh, and um, I have a website, stuartschrader.com. And the book, Badges Without Borders, you can find it easily on the University of California Press website. And if you, um, if you go to that, that website, there's a, 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 a link to click on it that says something like create a flyer. You create a flyer for the book on the website and it gives you a discount code. So you, I think you can get 30% off the, the purchase price from the University of California Press, which is a, a pretty a pretty good deal as um, academic books go, which are always a little bit more expensive than sure. trade books. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd love to, you know, I'd love to hear from, from your listeners and, 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 you know, I'm happy to, uh, you know, continue this, this conversation. Fantastic. We will definitely do that. Um, thanks a lot, Stuart. Okay. Thank you. Yeah.